You are listening to the Bottom Line podcast where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. Graham, it's been over six months since we caught up for our last podcast and life is going back to somewhat normal, a new normal. We had so much fun on the first time with the Bottom Line podcast that you decided to come back again. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Today we're going to be discussing surgery, something you're very familiar with. Firstly, we're just so incredibly lucky to have someone with your wealth of knowledge and experience impart information to us, which will greatly assist those going through bowel cancer surgery. So thank you. I think for many patients and carers, we're just so often bamboozled by the big medical terminology and we get swept away with what as surgeons might suggest. And we're thinking about the enormity of what's ahead without taking in all the information or the actual impact that surgery has on our body. So prior to surgery, we know patients typically undergo a colonoscopy. As a surgeon, you also perform colonoscopies. So I'd like to start at that moment during the procedure when you discover a cancer. Can you share what goes through your mind at this moment in time? Yes, I can, and thanks. Good to be with you. The, I guess the most important thing I feel is, oh, damn, even if we expect that the symptoms might be a cancer. And the second thing that goes through my mind is an immediate rush of information that makes me think about the age of the patient, the fitness of the patient, the family that they might have. There's a whole flood of things which then affect what we're going to need to do. But I then have to also deal with what we've actually seen. And the first thing that is really important technically is can I get past that cancer and get all the way around to exclude other pathology or even a second cancer or are we obstructed or obstructive? Can you explain to us what happens next then? Does the colonoscopy proceed as initially intended? Yes, it does, um, provided, as I said, we can get by the tumour and get round into the cecum, the beginning of a large bowel, because if we've excluded other pathology, it will seriously affect what we are going to need to do for the patient after that. If there are polyps in the bowel as well as the cancer, we would normally not remove those unless they were further up than the cancer because we don't want the flow of material through the bowel until surgery is ultimately performed to carry any microscopic cells from the cancer and implant into any wounds we create by removing polyps below the cancer. So we can remove polyps further up, but preferably not further down. We also have to remember that when we ultimately resect that cancer, we'll be removing the area above and below, and it depends on the nature of the cancer, where it is, a lot of factors. Do you take your biopsies then, and how's this done? Yeah, yeah, of course we take the biopsies then, and we do more than that. We will take photographs we will um, take biopsies from the tumour. And the third thing we will do is actually put some tattoo, some dye injected into the area. It depends where the tumour is, uh, usually uh, just above, but in any event, around the periphery of the wall of the bowel, um, just above or below 
the uh, tumour itself because as we're not doing much open surgery these days and most of it is uh, laparoscopic through the telescope keyhole or indeed now more recently robotic when we're almost in another country doing the surgery on the patient at the table with uh, a robot with robotic arms, we will then be able to see exactly where the cancer is because we can no longer feel the cancer. And therefore, that tattoo helps us decide basically where we're going to put the dotted line for cutting out the cancer. What happens then to the biopsies? They're sent off to pathology. Um, And what are the pathologists looking for? The um, biopsies go to the pathologist and usually marked urgent. We might offer the patient the opportunity as they've got their bowel prepared to have an immediate resection during that hospitalisation, stay in hospital and have that bit of bowel removed on our next operating list tomorrow, for example. But we want to be sure that, of course, we've got proof of uh, of finding. After we've been doing this for a number of years, the eyes are good. We know it's a cancer. But we always need to be sure there are some funny situations that arise we don't expect. So we mark it urgent. The pathologist then looks after uh, the specimen is processed looks under the microscope and says, these are cancer cells. Remember that the cancers arise from polyps. Polyps are multiplications of cells which should have been discharged in the bowel motion. A lot of the weight of our bowel motion is dead cells. And for every cell that's extruded, we should get a new one. That's meiosis. However, if one cell hangs around and its time expired, it divides, they divide, and they all divide. So we've got a spreading, a multiplication of cells such that a polyp less than a centimetre, less than 1% risk of cancer, polyp of two centimetres, 40% risk of cancer. So they look under the microscope and see that the cells which are being generated in each division are looking really abnormal. Their DNA is time expired, and ultimately they show cells which are penetrating what's called the basement membrane, the layer lining the actual surface cells, and they penetrated that. That's the beginning of potential spread. And if we've got all of a polyp out and we're with our diathermy burn, we are below those spreading cells, that's a cure if we don't need to operate, whereas if it's a more prolific um, polyp turned into cancer and it looks like an ulcerated growth, like an apple core that's left over after eating an apple, then um, those cells are so abnormal and so penetrating that uh, they say this is a cancer and they will give us a determination on the differentiation. Are they fairly benign-looking but cancer, or are they aggressive cancer cells? And the pathologist can tell by looking uh, about the nature of the cells. Just to take a step back, you mentioned that when you're doing a colonoscopy, your eye is fairly good. So really after, well, you've said to me you've been a colorectal surgeon now for 46 years. So really pathology is to confirm 
your instincts from the colonoscopy? It's a, it's a safety mechanism as well as, if you like, a medico-legal thing. last thing you want to do is take someone's colon out and find that it's a benign thing that you didn't have to remove. But, yeah, we do get pretty good at it. But the wonderful thing and the reason I'm still practising after that long is that just when I thought I knew everything there was to know about bowels, the next day I saw something I'd never seen before and that happens every day when I go to work. It's always something, subtle differences but differences. You've delivered good news as well as bad. Can you explain how you inform a patient when they wake up from the colonoscopy that they have bowel cancer? Yes, that depends upon a huge number of factors which, again, just swirl through your brain and with time you learn to adjust. Just as I mentioned before, when you see the cancer, a whole swirl of things goes through one's brain just because of years of dealing with a multiplicity of people, personalities and family circumstances, as well as comorbidities. So is this patient grossly obese? Do they have cardiac disease? Are they on blood-thinning um, tablets? Um, and then what is the age? There's a huge difference between telling a 70-year-old man who's got a great family to look after him and is otherwise fit and well compared to a 36-year-old woman who's pregnant at the time and has a late-stage baby on board who had IVF to get that baby. So we see those not infrequently now because, Stephanie, as you know, 10% of bowel cancers are occurring in people under 50 now. So the manner in which I approach that individual varies enormously according to their state. So the answer is different for everybody, empathetic, not sympathetic because we have to be practical, but empathetic. We understand this is a problem. You don't have to worry too much about it because we have a process. We will take you through it. And how do you feel, for example, with the 36-year-old woman who's pregnant and has had IVF, how do you feel going through that process, Graham? It's terrible. And, um, you know, we don't want that to happen. That's why we have Bowel Cancer Australia and we have our Never Too Young program. We are trying to make people aware that, no, a spot of blood from a hemorrhoid isn't going to be bowel cancer, but, gee, they occur, so don't ignore the warning signs. And so I guess I move my sympathies into doing that to try to stop it happening in other people in the future. But, uh, yeah, we are then, of course, very sympathetic um, but have to help them through it and be practical and give them the course that they're going to be needing to follow. And with enormous differences in management, according to, for example, if they're pregnant or if their cancer is just above the anus, can we preserve their anus or are they going to need removal of the anus as well or is it high up and a much more easy operation if it's round in the cecum, near the appendix, laparoscopically done, three little tiny keyhole scars, a huge difference. And or is it more advanced through the wall of the bowel and it's in the rectum and they're going to need radio and chemotherapy first. What's the timing of doing their surgery? A whole range of factors that we process quickly, wait for the path, but we're still processing quickly and then try to give them an example 
or a, a, an idea of what their path is going to be. Surgery in most cases is the recommended treatment following a diagnosis, as you've just mentioned. But as patients, we hear of the terms a general surgeon, a colorectal surgeon. You're a colorectal surgeon. Can you explain the difference for our listeners between the two? Yeah. When I was training as a surgeon to get my surgical degree, we all trained as general surgeons. And in fact, we did rotation through orthopaedics, head and neck, plastics, urology, vascular surgery, and so on. And I happened to arrive completed as a general surgeon at a time when there was some enthusiasm to specialise or subspecialise in large bowel. Now, large bowel ultimately came to also mean small intestine because diseases such as Crohn's disease affect the large and the small bowel. So generally it's intestinal surgery, but specifically the large bowel and in some subspecialty interests, in mine in particular, anorectal surgery. We deal with all the problems of the anus and the lower bowel. So as the years went on, those who said, I'm no longer doing gallbladders or stomachs uh, or livers, said, I'm just doing the intestine and particularly the large intestine. You don't, of course, get that in the rural areas. And you're very fortunate to have a general surgeon who these days don't much have to do the orthopaedics and the urology and the neurosurgery, but sometimes might. Um, and they tend more to do the breast surgery, bowel surgery, etc. When a patient is referred to you, how do you prepare a newly diagnosed patient for surgery? Obviously, so much I can talk to what a patient's going through. You are overwhelmed. You're not listening probably fully. You are scared. So how do you help a newly diagnosed patient understand what surgery is going to be like for them? And then what is the goal of that surgery? I think the most important thing we can impart to our training younger surgeons becoming colorectal or any other specialty is that we are going to take you through this. This is not an ego presentation. It's a I am experienced and I know how to deal with this for you and we will take you and your family through this process. However, the bad news might be that we've got a cancer to deal with, but the good news is, and then you can tell them, depend, modified by what you've seen so far, that we expect X, Y, and Z. If we've already done a CT scan and shown a liver full of secondary spread and they've got an obstructing cancer uh, with secondaries in the lungs as well, that's a totally different discussion because they're going to have a poor prognosis or poorer prognosis. Sorry to interrupt you, but at that po what point, if you know that they have got spots in the liver, et cetera, at what point do you discuss that with them or do you just discuss the initial surgery? How does that unfold? Yeah, after they've come out of their colonoscopy uh, a few minutes ago, they're waking up 
the last thing we're going to do is say you've got three months to live. And this rubbish that people are told, by the way, oh, you've got three months to live or one month to live, is just such garbage. This is press stuff. Um, people do ask, well, how long have I got, doctor? And people will say, you know, vague things. But we don't know how long people are going to live. But we do know that if you have secondaries in the liver you and it's an isolated secondary and they've got no other disease, you can have surgery for the bowel, you can have that secondary in the liver resected, and you've got better than a 50% chance of surviving the disease. So it's not what it used to be. Whereas you've got a liver full of disease and secondaries in the lungs, the chances are that you are not going to survive the disease. But with modern medications, chemotherapy, you might well get a decent quality of life for a decent period of time. So it depends how they respond to the emerging almost daily new chemotherapeutic managements. But for the patient that's just come out of their colonoscopy and they've got a cancer, we do not say, well, you've got a cancer and we're going to remove it and you'll be this or that because, firstly, they're half asleep. And secondly, we haven't usually done the CT scan and all the blood tests and investigations that will follow in order to what we call stage their disease. In other words, we've seen it in the bowel, but is it anywhere else and has it spread anywhere else? So we will say... Unfortunately, it looks like you've got a cancer in the bowel if it really looks like one. Otherwise, we might say there's a very big polyp and we've taken a biopsy and I want you to come back next Tuesday and I'll give you the results and we'll go through what we find then. And you do that as quickly as you can for them because you can get the path back in 48 hours um, so that they're not agonising for too long because they're going to be obviously concerned even if you've been That's the stressful part, isn't it? Having been there, that wait, that two-day wait is incredible. You'd almost rather know that you've got a cancer and get on with it than have to wait. And so we will say that and they'll come back in a couple of days and we will give them the pathology. If they've got an obvious cancer and it's round, as I said at the beginning of the large bowel, we can say, look, you've got a definite cancer. We have to wait for the path to come back, but I can get that by tomorrow evening or something. Would you like to consider, if they're otherwise fit, having an operation while you hear your bowel prepared? And the majority of fit people say, yes, please, get the bloody thing out. So, you know, so now if their cancer is in their rectum, then it's a different discussion because then we have to say, is it in the wall of the bowel? Is it through the wall of the bowel? Is there any spread? So we'll say it looks like you may have a cancer. We've taken a biopsy um, and I want to get some other tests done. I've already written the forms out for you to, while you were asleep and recovering to get your PET scan, your CT scan, your CEA, your hemoglobin and blah, blah, blah. And all of that will be a rush for them, but they'll be busy getting all that done in the next day or two. And then I'll see you on Thursday. We'll have all the results back and we'll have a discussion. The next discussion might be that these days that we want to put you through the MDT, the multidisciplinary tumour clinic, where we have the radiotherapist, the chemotherapist, the surgeon. The surgeon might be the flag waver and the controller, but he or she is also going to have the input at joint meetings these days to discuss best management, particularly, as I've said, for rectal tumours, where there's a lot of to and fro and 
and confluence of those three specialty groups. I think that's an important point, Graham, because as you know, I had rectal cancer and someone mentioned on a podcast recently, and I really like this term, cancer is a team game in a way. Absolutely. So what then is the goal of surgery? The goal of surgery is to do two things. One, remove the cancer. And two, it's to avoid any of the terrible side effects from having a cancer in the bowel. I'm not talking about beyond that at the moment. So even in an advanced cancer, the aim is to remove it if at all possible. We have to balance that in people with seriously advanced peripheral disease from the cancer, the surgery versus options in management. However, the aim is to get rid of it if at all possible. Um, but what we're getting rid of is the tumour in the bowel, in the bowel wall, around the periphery of the bowel wall, and even in the lymph glands which drain the area of the bowel wall tumour. But beyond that, that's the job of chemotherapy if there's any likelihood of spread. And the staging of the tumour, that is the advancement of the tumour, significantly affects the likelihood of spread. Now, we can't tell that microscopically yet. It will come one day. But what we can tell is if there are obvious secondaries or likelihood of spread to the liver or lymph nodes or other areas of the body. And um, if there was a single spot in the liver, we'd remove that as well. In the same surgery, Graham, you'd remove the Well, that's a discussion point between the liver surgeon and the bowel surgeon, and there, there are discussions about that. And then there are some patients who it's optimal, depends on their level of fitness. What sort of complications can occur from surgery and how do you inform patients of the risks? I guess if you're speaking to a patient who's a lawyer, you could probably spend a week talking to them and still not have told them everything that could be a risk to them, um, you know, ranging from an infection where the needle goes in to put you to sleep um, through to death from a heart attack during the surgery. But the most common and important complications are bleeding from a blood vessel that you can't control easily during the surgery. You might need to open the patient and, and deal with that bleeder if you're doing it laparoscopically or robotically. Um, the most important complication that we need to avoid is that remember you are removing a segment of a hose a hollow tube and you are joining the two ends of that tube together unlike um, removing uh, the gallbladder or the appendix where it's a little side branch of a part of the body you clip it off and remove it you're not joining anything back so when you're doing the join again, the chance of a leak from that join is an important aspect because if the leak is minor, you can get infection. If it's major, you can get peritonitis, have to reopen the patient, might have to therefore bring a piece of bowel out higher up in the bowel tubing to divert the bowel motion temporarily while the rejoined leak heels, etc. So they're the important ones, but there are a million other factors like a clot in the leg. So we give prevention against clots. Uh, that clot in the leg could go to the lung and cause a pulmonary embolus. There are literally a thousand complications that can occur. And we tell the patient the common and major ones 
Mostly these days they're not common, fortunately, because we've got better at protecting against them and our equipment and our techniques have improved over the years. So you were talking before about the location of the cancer um, and I think this is a really important point for our listeners because I don't think a lot of people understand the difference. What is the difference with cancer of the colon or the rectum and what determines the surgical treatment options around that? Yeah, cancer of the colon refers to the large bowel higher up. The rectum is a continuation of the colon or large intestine, but it's the straight bit. In fact, the word in Latin, prot, means straight. And it's the last bit going down into the pelvis um, and then joining at the anus. And the pelvis is a cone-shaped organ. It contains a lot of other important structures, such as the bladder, the uterus and vagina, and some big blood vessels. And so it's a, a bit of a minefield in there. So the surgery, either in as we used to do it more commonly, open or laparoscopically or robotically, the surgery is a bit more technically difficult. And if it's technically difficult, it means the risk of joining the bowel together is slightly higher. And it also means that the difficulty of surgery is greater because of what I've just described. And with those two factors, we also have to add in the fact that when you get spread through the wall of the colon higher up, as long as no other organs have stuck to it or it hasn't penetrated any other organ, you, that bit's flopping around. It's a more mobile bit of tubing, hosing, and we can cut it out, remove the drainage blood vessels and lymph glands more technically easily and join things together more easily. So it's technically an easier operation. When we do the surgery finally, the one thing we might have to do is consider because, as we've said, it's difficult technically, we might want to protect the joint from the potential leak. So we might bring out a loop of small intestine further upstream and bring it out through a hole in the tummy wall, which is an ileostomy, and bag that. And the patient then will need in the MDT to also have the benefit of the stomal therapy nurse there who can, or then or later, to explain how that works, how they manage it, and take away the scary mystique of having a bag with feces on your tongue wall. I had rectal cancer, so I know how scary the thought of a stoma in a bag is. So how do you guide patients through this process? To have a bag with feces coming out on your abdominal wall especially for a girl, ain't so much fun. Very confronting. <laughs> Very confronting. And, you know, when the stomal therapist says to you or the surgeon says, but you'll be able to have sex, play tennis, whatever you want to do, your brain is saying, yeah, well, but uh, all very well. So um, that's why we have had the development of stomal therapy. Yet another specialty not in colorectal surgery, but assisting colorectal surgery, a terribly, terribly important part of what we can now offer. If the scenario is that you need a temporary loop of small intestine brought out 
to allow your join in your rectum to heal and you're going to then have a small operation around the ileostomy to pop it back inside the tummy and re-establish continuity and then things flow past your new joint in your low rectum and you have normal bowel habit after that. Not totally normal, you've got to get used to the change, etc. Bowel motion's a bit different, a bit more frequent, whatever, whatever, but generally if you have that, that's great. Some people, however, have a very low rectal cancer or a fairly low rectal cancer, which is very advanced and needs more radical surgery, and they lose their anus. And what does that mean? That means that when you remove the rectum, the last straight bit, the surgeon also has to remove the anus. You have no hole there anymore, and that defect after the anus is removed with the cancer in the rectum just above is stitched up. So in, in layman's terms, you can no longer... You no longer need to go to the toilet to pass a bowel motion. However, you have to pass a bowel motion and therefore the higher bowel, if you remove the disease, chop above and below the cancer, below in this discussion is outside the anus and above is wherever the appropriate point to cut it off, where the blood vessels and lymph nodes are, that's an anatomical decision. When you've got the end of the bowel waving in the breeze, that has to be brought out usually in the lower left quadrant of the abdomen, and that is a permanent stoma, and you live with that the rest of your life. Can you talk us through the different surgical methods, open, keyhole, robotic, and the pros and cons of each? So I've got silver hair and I am old enough to um, be able to see what I consider uh, some of the negatives about the more modern techniques of laparoscopic and robotic surgery. Having said that, there is no question in my mind today that the vast majority of colorectal and a lot of other abdominal surgery should be done laparoscopically, if not perhaps robotically. And by that I mean that when you open a patient, and I'll give you the pros and cons of each, you make a big cut in the abdomen. So you have a big hole you can work in. That's a big negative. They have a painful incision. That takes days in hospital to recover enough, even if their surgery wasn't major, inside the belly. When you're inside the abdomen, you've got the benefit of the tactile sensation. I feel with my gloved fingers whether the ureter is stuck to the cancer on the bowel. We can do a careful dissection. You can do the dissection carefully, laparoscopically and robotically, but you can't feel what you're feeling. You can't feel the tumour. So there are some minor pros and cons there. But you can certainly do very nice technical surgery by one of the more modern techniques. A robot costs several million dollars. You can do open surgery and still do high-quality surgery. So there are technical benefits that are available, not even in that case with laparoscopic and only with robotic. Does that mean laparoscopic is outmoded? Absolutely not. It just means that there are advances which are happening all the time but may not be appropriate if costs don't allow it. If you find the cancer is more ex extensive, 
than originally believed. Can you explain what happens from, from that point on? Yeah. First of all, the MDT, the multidisciplinary tumour clinic, becomes very much more important. Most of the time when we present the very majority of our cancer patients to the clinic, it's straightforward. The surgeon knows what he's going to be doing or she's going to be doing. And it's almost a decision made, cancer of the colon, resected, blah, blah, blah. When it's more advanced, that's when we clearly need the input uh, with a little uh, professional argument to and fro about radio, chemo, therapy, etc., and timing. So it becomes very much then an individualised scenario. Everybody is different and we have to then involve the patient and or nearly always and their family um, consistently, continuously um, and walk them through that process. So essentially, Graham, it is very much a collaboration with the patient and explaining and informing them and empowering them to make informed decisions. Yes, very much. And also it's the patient's body. It's their body. They have the right to know. What has been the longest time you've been in surgery? 45 years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would think probably about 13 hours, I recall, and that was for a patient who had multiple, multiple operations and had a bowel obstruction and we just were in there dividing adhesions yet again and every centimetre was a careful dissection and there are many metres of intestine and uh, I remember her well, I'm picturing her now and it was 13 hours and they go down from that. So wearing a mask all that time, by the way, with COVID now, didn't even notice it. Today I put the mask on where for surgery, don't notice it. Have to put the mask on to go shopping with my wife. Can't stand it. So it's like everybody else. <laughs> different. <laughs> Very different. As a surgeon, Graham, how do you define success? Patient satisfaction, no question. Because if we've been unsuccessful, they're not going to be satisfied anyway. So I regard it as patient satisfaction. Patient satisfaction is the arbiter. So now we're going to go into some post-surgery discussion and often patients want to know some really practical things. How long will patients be unable to eat following surgery, for example? It depends on uh, two factors. One is how complex their surgery was and two is whether we joined their bowel because we have to protect the joint. But these days we can get them on to early feeding, early fluids in particular, and with good quality surgery and safe surgery, we can usually get them taking fluids pretty quickly. Some um, units will actually commence them immediately after surgery. My practice is to rest them for a few days when they pass a bit of wind, get them onto fluids by mouth, and then get them eating as they get their first bit of liquid motion coming through when the 
peristalsis, the contractile waves, recommence in the bowel. If they've had a temporary diverting ileostomy or even a permanent colostomy, once what's called ileus settles down, that is the bowels get a bit of a shock after surgery and don't come back to contracting as quickly, once that's settled and they're passing a bit of wind, they can not be worrying about protecting a joint and therefore they can be getting onto nutrition, bit liquid and then soft foods fairly quickly, a couple of days. The uh, ileus is less with the less invasive surgery. So open surgery, that ileus was more common, more handling of the bowel. With the laparoscopic and robotic surgery, uh, even earlier these days. So they can, And, of course, their wound isn't as painful because they're three tiny, three or four tiny wounds with the instrumental techniques. So quite quickly. Recovery times vary and everyone has a unique experience. What should patients expect in terms of surgical recovery? Surgical recovery really means, I guess, getting over the op. It used to be 10 days or even longer in hospital. Now it's about half that uh, for most of the major resections. Uh, So that's a a very broad response to your question because it'll it'll depend, but with no complications um, four or five days if it's a right hemicolectomy, three to four days right hemicolectomy uh, for a right colon cancer and a bit longer for the uh, lower ones and it depends whether they've got the stoma and they need the stoma management. But within that week usually is the case. Uh, time off work, it depends what they do. If they're working from home these days, if they're uh, a desk man, or a woman, they can get back to work, of course, much faster than somebody whose job is um, uh, carting bags of cement. So, But if they don't have that major scar, then they can carry their bags of cement also earlier than they used to. Exercise is very important to getting you back on the recovery path. And when you're in hospital, you know, a physio comes in immediately and they want to get you walking. Um, I know that experience very well. What other assisted services can people utilise to improve their recovery? The single word is mobilisation. So we give protection against clots in the leg, but mobilising the legs, exercises, knee and ankle quickly. They don't have the big cut most of the time in their belly, so they can actually even do little gentle sit-ups in the tummy if there's no other reason not to. And deep breathing is terribly important. And, of course, then getting out of bed and walking fairly quickly. Um, So usually the next day they can, so very much faster these days. How soon after surgery do patients have to wait for all their test results and have a firm diagnosis? I know for me, for example, I wasn't staged until two or three days after my surgery. Yeah. Um, As we've discussed before, most staging is done pre-surgery these days, particularly with rectal, because you want to know the state of play, depending upon whether you're going to give radio chemo or not. So the uh, bottom line to all of that is most people are fully staged but the, not totally, even if you've had all the tests and assessments beforehand, because one of the features of staging is the pathology on the removed specimen. You may have an MRI which says it looks like it's through the wall and in glands or not in glands, but not until the pathologist looks at the specimen under the microscope will they really know 
whether those glands were inflamed or not inflamed with cancer in them or not, whether there was any, any cells in the blood vessels leading from the cancer, etc. So well, that'll come back. Now, to do a big specimen isn't 48 hours, it's four or five days. So these days, about under a week to get final pathology back. If you're going to have chemo, is there a wait time between surgery and having chemo or further treatment? It's a fine balance because one of the things that's most important is getting that joint in the bowel to heal. And therefore, apart from just your own recovery, and when you give chemo, you also can get side effects, um, cell suppression elsewhere, changes in the bone marrow, um, just generally side effects such as not feeling very well, nausea, etc. So we want to give uh, a happy medium of time between not waiting too long, but also letting A, you settle down, and B, the joint heal reasonably well. So it'll usually be a few weeks, but certainly not done in days. What advice then can you give to our listeners who may be preparing for or recovering from surgery or having a stoma reverse? What sort of tips can you give them? Be calm. The word cancer is a scary thing. Um, There's a tumour called a carcinoid and it's not as aggressive in most people um, as cancers and it just happens to have a similar name and yet it scares And the word cancer just means you've got something which has the potential to cause trouble, but it doesn't mean it's going to cause you trouble provided we get rid of it. The T1, T2 cancers, the very superficial ones or just into the wall, are usually cured. Um, 98, 99% of those cancers are cured by surgery and you get equally very good results with even a bit more advanced tumours. So don't be scared. Listen to the advice. Pick your doctor well and let your doctor and doctors, because of the multidisciplinary team, take you through the process. We've got a routine now. We've got a system. And just go with the flow. Ask your questions. Make sure your team are giving you the opportunity to ask questions and make sure you're comfortable with the answers. As always, we're so incredibly lucky to have you. You selflessly share so much of your knowledge and time to assist patients and carers on this bowel cancer journey. Thank you for all you do for us at Bowel Cancer Australia, helping to raise awareness of bowel cancer. And we look forward to our next chat very soon on the Bottom Line podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.